Welcome to the Semi-Interesting Podcast, where we explore some of the unique legal issues in the global semiconductor industry. My name is Nathaniel Lusak. I'm an IP attorney at the law firm of Hodgson Russ and one of your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Morris. I'm an IP attorney and director of intellectual property and products at Pure Storage in Mountain View, California, and I am one of your hosts. We're going to take a break on this episode from deep legal analysis to talk about Belgium. And because this podcast is about the semiconductor industry, specifically, we're going to talk about iMac. I just returned from a week of waffles, chocolate, and fries in Belgium, and I passed through Leuven repeatedly, which made me wonder, how did Belgium end up with iMac, the world-renowned semiconductor research hub? Everyone, and I mean everyone, works with iMac, which puts Belgium on the map when it comes to the semiconductor industry. But why is iMac there? What does Belgium have that made it grow in Leuven instead of a counterpart sprouting up in Silicon Valley or Japan? To answer those questions, we're joined by John Backelmans, formerly a vice president at IMAC and currently the science and technology counselor for the Americas at Flanders Investment and Trade, a Flemish government agency based in New York City. Thanks for joining everyone today. It's a pleasure to be able to go back and continue my trip, even though I'm, I'm no longer in Europe. Thanks for having us, uh, Nathaniel. Oh, Nathaniel, that's a great intro. Thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about INEC and Belgium in general, and hopefully how I can take a trip to Belgium as well. John, I know you and Nathaniel have worked together before, but you and I have just met a few minutes ago. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell them a little bit about who you are and how you got connected with INEC? Perfect. Of course, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for the nice introduction, both of you, uh, Elizabeth and Nathaniel. I am indeed a Belgian citizen. Um, I have come to America uh, for a number of times, but the last time I came and I stayed here for almost now two and a half years in New York. So I live and work out of New York. As Nathaniel introduced, I work for the uh, Flemish government. Flanders is the northern part of the, the beautiful country of Belgium, small country in the middle of uh, Europe. We always call it the gateway to Europe because it's indeed very centrally located. And uh, what I do today is I work in a government agency. I assist Flemish companies coming to, in this case, the US. And I specialize mostly in health and life sciences. But of course, I have, as a former employee of IMEC, I have a deep nano and digital um, experience, which I will talk about later. And then, so I was indeed a former vice president of IMEC. I was also their managing director for their operations in the Netherlands, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. So pleased to be here. Wonderful. Well, to start this off, even though most of the people who are listening probably already have a general sense of what IMEC is, could you start off by just talking about what is IMEC? What do they do? Why are they so well known? Why is it so powerful? Yeah, so as you also indicated, IMEC is what we call in Belgium a strategic research center. And the Flemish government, we are a federal country, Belgium, that is, and typically the regions have a number of areas on which they are focused on. And so the Flemish government has focused on a lot on technology. And so in this case, in 1982, they started a lot of focus on microelectronics. And of course, at that time, it was still micro. At this time, we're talking about nano, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. And that's also where the name IMEC is coming from, eh? Inter-University Microelectronics Center, because in 1982, and actually 
IMEC was founded in 1984, they were talking about microelectronics. And the goal of IMEC and the way it was founded by the government was to actually bring together all of the experiences in the different universities around microelectronics and to really make it a government-funded program to make the region and, of course, the country a lot stronger in those areas. And so IMIC then came about, and the way it actually does their business, we'll talk about it later because it's still a not-for-profit company, but the way IMIC does its business is focused on innovation in the semiconductor roadmap. They are the strategic research centers globally, which focused on shrinking circuitry and basically leading the semiconductor roadmap for the last 39 years because they got founded in 1984. If they're a non-profit, but they're so focused on leading the industry, how do they get funding? Well, that was a very bold move from the uh, minister president and his government back then. They basically took half of their yearly innovation budget in 1984, and they put that into the foundation of Vimec. They took 70 of the most prominent and expert scientists, and they used those as the early employees of Vimec as a strategic research center. Of course, that initial funding could not continue, and Vimec had to find their own funds to do what they wanted to do. And that, I think, was the smartest move they made. Instead of just focusing on innovation regionally or perhaps in Europe, they said, we're going to make this a global capability where you want to work with global players. And the way the global players will collaborate with us is through funded programs. And so a lot of the funding they get today, more than 80%, by the way, is all coming from industry players. And it's the biggest in the world who work on a every single day with IMEC, eh? whether, whether we talk about the Samsungs, the Intels, the Apples, the Googles, the NVIDIAs, all of these guys are working with IMEC to actually advance their semiconductor capabilities and their next generation chipsets down into the nanometer and beyond range. So at the time in 1984, I can't imagine it was a terribly popular decision to take half of the government budget and necessarily put it into a dream or an empty field. What kind of reaction was there initially at this plan? Yeah, that's of course the initial resistance they got internally eh, into the country and the region. Why would somebody take half of the budget and put it into this new innovative stuff, which they called microchips at the time? Well, it was a very visionary government. It was very visionary people. And of course, it was a big promise from the original CEO, Roger van Overstraat, who was the original CEO coming off the KU Leuven. And the KU Leuven is one of the uh, great universities we have in Flanders. KU Leuven has been, I think, the most innovative university the last five years. They've, they've got that award three times in Europe. They are in the top 50 of best universities in the world. So they're really an advanced capability. And of course, the promise and the dream of building something very focused from a technology leadership perspective for the region was, of course, the promise they delivered to the rest of the people. And, and hindsight, now 39 years later, it has nothing but kept that promise. And everybody, indeed, like you said, Italian, in your introduction, everybody wants to work with IMEC because of their independent way of dealing 
with parties and their open way to actually share that new innovation and that those innovations in the semiconductor roadmap. And of course, it hasn't stayed with that just in the semiconductor space. They've built around the semiconductor space. They've looked at all other areas of technology innovation, whether it's health, whether it's energy, whether it's AI. Of course, always focused on semiconductors, but they're helping now application areas with the advancement of those technologies as well. And the way they do it and the openness they do it with is, I think, their big success factor. In all of these projects, I think you said, you know, 85% funded by industry. Are they mostly taking place in Belgium or are they taking place at the companies that are founding them? What's the relationship there? One of the great things about IMEC is their non-for-profit nature. And so everything they have as an extra, they reinvest back into IMEC. And so they've built this amazing infrastructure of clean rooms in Leuven. I think for the last 39 years now, I think they put more than three and a half billion euros back into it. And so it's very simple. People want to come to Leuven because they want to work in that clean room because that clean room has the most advanced infrastructure you can imagine on a global scale. And for example, the people who create the machines to actually then produce chips later on, they've been the closest partners ever since IMEX inception. So ASML, which is, a, is an, another success story in the Netherlands, they produce all these machines where IMEX first invents in collaboration with them, and then ASML, is the partner who brings the machines to the world where you can then produce these next generation chipsets. So no, it's it's really their biggest partners are typically there with 10, 20, 30 employees collaborating with the researchers from IMEC on those next generation architectures and capabilities to advance that roadmap. So typically they come to Leuven, they collaborate with the people from IMEC to expand. And then once the initial IP is created, the initial prototypes, are being created on the pilot line from IMEC, then those are being brought to either the company's own fabs or foundries, or they being advanced by somebody else and produced for those companies. These companies aren't necessarily located in Flanders, though, right? Like, why didn't Germany or France or the Netherlands create their own version of IMEC inside their own country? Why is it that IMEX has been successful specifically in Flanders? I think that's for me, I think probably one of the most genius things they've done initially. They've always been that open Switzerland kind of approach where they always wanted to serve the global environment. Whereas, for example, in France, what you've seen that is something like called LETI. Uh, LETI is the French uh, semiconductor research organization, but they can also only work for French companies. Germany is Fraunhofer, and Fraunhofer does a lot of that thing too, but they're doing it for the German-based companies. And I think the brilliance of IMEC was always to open up from the start on a global scale and to work with everybody and to really not only do it for Flanders or for Europe, but to do it on a, on a global scale. And that's what I think is the difference between some of the names I just mentioned and between the success of IMEC. What's the connection then with KU Leuven? One of the things that I'm always struck by when I'm in Belgium, and Flanders in particular, you have a workforce that's all trilingual. Everyone has a degree. Many people have master's degrees or more. So it seems like planting IMEC right next to 
one of Europe's premier universities was fortuitous, to say the least. Going back in time, though, to 1984, I mean, what, what was the relationship with the university? What was the university like back then? They, I think they were always, even before 1984, a little IMAC. And they were building more and more capacity. And I think it was seen and understood by the government at that time and by a very visionary minister president, as we call them at the time, that whatever was happening in Leuven could have a lot more impact. And so the inter-university, the, the I in IMEC, is that they've combined resources from multiple universities now. We are combining five good university capabilities into one, and that's how we're even extending the power of a KU Leuven. So that's also why, for example, in 2016, not so long ago, IMEC has merged together with a software kind of strategic research center called iMinds. And so IMEC and iMinds are now working together there. They've merged their operations. IMEC still very much focused on hardware and semiconductor. And, and iMinds brings in the software knowledge. And of course, software and hardware brings applications to bear and application areas to bear. And that's why iMic is now very much also focused on advancing a number of really strategic technology areas with other players. And they've advanced their partnerships from, I'd say, 300 companies to now 600 partners with whom they really collaborate on a daily basis to advance their technology roadmaps. Maybe this is iMinds, maybe this is iMac. I think you mentioned very briefly early on that there's some aspect of AI um, research going on. I'd love to hear more about that. And Nathaniel and I can't get enough of AI. We've talked to several people about it already, but what's iMac doing in that space? Yeah, so iMac wouldn't be iMac if they would take it the iMac approach. And so iMac, for example, created a number of years ago, and you can Google and look for iMac brain chip or something like that. So iMac created a chip resembling the way our brains work and react and the ways they interconnect within a brain. So they've mimicked the way a brain works into a chip and they've made that chip so powerful, but also so energy efficient. That was always the goal, to create a chip which was as energy efficient as the brain. They're not there yet today, as far as I know, but they're coming closer and closer and closer. And that shows one, that we have an amazing thing called the brain, but two, to get to the same energy usage, to actually be able to do a lot more in hardware from an AI perspective versus in software, which we still do a lot today, is where iMac wants to really make the leap. And that's how they always think about the future. They're not thinking about one generation, but they're thinking always two generations ahead. Their forte, of course, the way they can really make a difference is by advancing that in hardware. But the inclusion and introduction iMind's capabilities and people, a lot of talent, of course, is of course that, that they can start in software and then advance their algorithms into implementing them in hardware. And that's what also they've done in, in AI. And they're advancing those capabilities as we speak to make the most energy efficient and the most advanced AI chips for the world to see and to come. The other piece or one of the other research focuses then is on life sciences, health solutions, genomics. And what was the genesis of that to get from semiconductor research over to the life sciences? It's a, an interesting evolution, I think. And what IMIC saw, um, for example, they had this, I think it's been publicized so I can talk about it. One of the companies in the US, Illumina, known out there for helping to decode the human genome and to really helping us 
get down to more acceptable levels when you want your DNA to be decoded. Companies typically come to iMac with the question, hey, we have a device which is too large. Can iMac help us to shrink it down? And think about, I'm holding up my smartphone now, think about how every generation we see coming about has more capabilities in our cameras as another telephoto lens. And that's how iMic always has been trying to focus on shrinking down, but putting more capabilities into them. And so the way they've typically thought about it differently than other parties is by thinking it from a hardware perspective and thinking not just by combining parts, but by redesigning parts in a way that there was a lot more powerful capabilities, but it also was there to shrink the entire package down to a much smaller package. And for example, a lot of the work with Illumina brought their, let's say, room full of device to first do the human genome into the size of a printer. And so what they've always tried to do is use semiconductor technology to advance those capabilities. And if you think about it now, a lot of the work now, Nathaniel, is of course in diagnostics and the way you do things like cell counting and all again there, you, iMac is using the microfluidic processors. It's like a technology with a lot of channels. It's fully semiconductor based and where those channels are being set up in a semiconductor to do very, very fast cell counting. And that cell counting now helps us to do things like pattern recognition of certain cancers. And so they always try to use the semiconductor approach, even in their latest version of what they call the breathalyzer. I don't know if you've seen that. Eh? iMac has found the device in the COVID times where you breathe into. And through semiconductor technology, they analyze your breath so that the quality of the testing is the same as 24-hour lab testing, but in a 15-minute analysis through a semiconductor chip. And you see, that's always the thing they're trying to strive towards. And of course, they're using a lot of the semiconductor or the software knowledge to do initial simulations and then to advance that into hardware. I would have much rather breathed into something than all the Q-tips I ended up sticking up in nose. Exactly that point. So they're ready now, and I'm sure they're going to be more airborne or let's hope not. But if any of these airborne diseases comes our way or pandemics, they'll have a much better way now to handle those kind of testing versus what we had the last three years. Yeah, for sure. You said earlier that, you know, one of the reasons everybody likes to come to Belgium is because you have these amazing clean rooms. And now you've been talking about, you know, this biology related stuff. Do you also have a bunch of amazing laboratories on site? Yeah. And, and they're not just on site. Of course, they're there. The great thing about this is, first of all, Elizabeth, I reckon you haven't been in Belgium yet. Is that true? I went when I was 19. I had a good time. I saw the little peeing boy statue, but yeah, not not a lot. There you go. You've seen the most important thing in Belgium, uh, which is Manaka as we call it. But if you think about Belgium, if you think about Flanders, it's very small. You drive from one side to the other side of the country in less than three hours. And then if you think about the region of Flanders, it's about 7 million people living there. You have five big universities and the smart thing, what I think the government did, but also I make it in the way they deploy and use resources is by using resources across those different universities. And so the labs, the big clean room for semiconductor pilot lines is indeed in Leuven, 
but all the other labs and the focus areas are being spread out through those different universities and their departments. And so, for example, in Limburg, when you think about energy and researching to the next generation batteries we want to use in our electrical cars so that we can, in less than three minutes, charge them fully instead of having to wait, you know, half an hour or, or an hour to get them charged. Those labs are more in the east of Flanders. And so they really spread it out to more evenly use and to be closer to the students and to also use a better spread of the population and talent across those different areas and departments. But of course, if you want to make a chip from it, you will always have to end up in Leuven because that's where the chip will be made. That's where the pilot line is. But all the researchers, depending upon where they are and which university they belong to, they are sitting in their respective areas and locations where they have built up all those labs needed for that particular technology area. So John, your love of technology shines through, which I think is why you're in your current role for Flanders Investment and Trade. So based on what you've seen, do you have any sense in terms of what the roadmap's going to be about where IMAX going in the future or what new technologies there's going to be a research shift toward? Yeah, I wish I had a crystal ball. It's an interesting question. You know that probably in the space of the semiconductor, they've been talking about Moore's Law. You remember Gordon Moore, founder of Intel, said one day that every 24 months, doubling up the amount of transistors. I think the guy was right. And of course, with the advancement and the amount of transistors, billions of transistors now into a chip, comes, of course, the question, how long can we keep on doing it through a technology we call CMOS? SEMOS is a technology they use for the transistors and the way the transistors go from zero to one and switch back. There is an ending to that, or there is a proposed ending to that coming very, very soon. But that very, very soon has been basically said for the last 10 years. And IMIC keeps on finding ways to, in very innovative architectures, uh, 3D stacking, and all those very interesting ways you can basically create a transistor into a chip. They found ways to stretch those CMOS limitations. And I think last year or earlier this year, they've introduced their next five-year or seven-year roadmap still going on with CMOS. The cool thing about CMOS is that all of the technology we have today to produce and to mass produce this is available or is an evolution of today's technology. When you have to do it in different type of foundational technologies, it becomes a lot harder. So of course, IMEC is working on what is beyond CMOS, and there is not a lot of visibility on that yet, but they're working on it because as I said, two generations is what they're looking for, but at least the next two generations were covered. They've got it under control. All of the major technology companies are working with them to ensure that they are covered and they know how to advance their capabilities. Of course, things like quantum are some of the things which will all keep us interested into the evolution of the capabilities we have today versus what is to come or what is already there today. And quantum, when you think about capabilities in processing speed and so on, right? So are you saying we can be fairly comfortable in assuming that Moore's Law is going to go for another seven years? I do feel like my entire professional career has been discussing, you know, the death of Moore's Law. I'm kind of getting hopeful that it'll last my entire professional career and I'll be able to retire before it stops being true. But what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, IMEC keeps on making the impossible possible through the way they keep on reinventing the transistor and, and how uh, switching of those zeros and ones 
keep on going, right? So the fact that they've announced the roadmap uh, again, the fact that the roadmaps are driven through not just the the ideas of the of the scientists, but also in collaboration with all their major partners. Eh? They're doing yearly conventions and they get all their major partners, CTOs and all those type of executives together to talk about that. And so it's not just a one-sided view from IMEC. No, they know that they can do it. Otherwise, they wouldn't announce and propose the roadmap. I don't know how long your career will keep on going, Elizabeth, but uh, if I look at you, probably another 10, 10, 15, 20 years, I don't know if it's going to stretch that long, but IMEC has ideas on how to do it the next two generations. So that's that's very promising. Uh, that helps us to, of course, make sure that there is an evolution in the capabilities we all want and desire, but there will be an ending soon because there are physical boundaries to what or how an electron will keep on flowing from one side to the other, right? So, John, going back to something you said earlier about being so good at working with everybody and not just Europe and not just Belgium, but everybody, is that really everybody? And does that ever create tension? There's a lot of tension in the world right now, especially maybe, you know, the East versus West and the semiconductor space, for instance. Are there people or companies that IMEX strategically doesn't work with? How do you handle that? Yeah, that's a tough question. The geopolitical situation is always tough and also for IMEX to juggle because indeed, eh, five years ago, East and West, both of them were were deeply entrenched into the evolution. The way they do that, eh, they typically start an open program at the start of a next generation wave of technology. They go from three nanometers to two nanometers, from two to one nanometer and so on. They then invite all their biggest strategic partners into collaborating. And then what they do is they set a baseline of uh, when they've done basically a, a version 1.0 of that baseline. And then everybody takes off that baseline what they need and require and they go off and they specialize it for their particular applications in where they need that new technology area to live. And that's how indeed <laughs> all of the competitors as we know them today are working together initially to work on the on the next generation types of capabilities. And once they spawn off their own version of that evolution, they create their own, let me call it a proprietary version of, of the technology. With the coming about of the US Chips Act, and as a reaction to that, the European Chips Act, you see that that Americans want to get a better hold again of their especially manufacturing capabilities and the fact that all everything moved east the last 30 years, they want to get back under control there. Same thing a little bit in Europe. Uh, Europe also wants to advance uh, from, from I think what is it? I think it was 10% or 7%. They want to go into a higher percentage over the next five to 10 years. So you'll see a little bit of move there, but IMEC will always play neutral terrain. And apparently it has become very apparent. So for example, also in the European Chips Act, all the European countries agreed now that IMEC is the pilot line for entirely Europe. So they got a billion euro funding, which is a little bit more in the US, uh, one point something billion dollars funding just to make sure that they can satisfy the requirements of all the neighboring countries and being the pilot line for them. I know there is a lot of discussion still going also with the US and, uh, and IMEC to see what they can do in advancing the US CHIPS Act. And that's the role IMEC wants to keep on playing. They want to be that neutral entity where it doesn't really matter where you're coming from. As long as you think about the evolution of the technology and you want to make the world better, you want to make the world a better place through technology, 
That's also what the tagline is of Iming, by the way. That's when they want to play with you. And of course, it's probably a little bit more difficult now to work with the East. And I'm sure IMIC has their methodologies and processes in place to keep everything very well into a walled garden. If they still work with some of those people, they've never let anybody down in that regard either. And that's why people want to keep on working with them. And it's because, yeah, the right people are working there, that we have an amazing workforce who want to stay in the country and who wouldn't want to stay in that country, Nathaniel, if you think about the food, the beer, the great weather sometimes. But you know what I mean, right? The the weather is definitely what keeps me returning to Belgium for all of my trips. Absolutely. <laughs> John, I have one more question. So you just said billion dollars for the European Chips Act. And then much earlier on in the conversation, you said 80% of the funding is from industry. So where's the other 20%? But let me finish my question, which is also, if you have funding from a variety of sources, how do you keep those funding sources from becoming too big of a voice in the conversation that you're trying to keep very, you know, academic and beautiful and Belgian chocolate-esque, right? Like, how do you do that? Yeah. Let me first talk about the 20%. The 20% comes from us, from the Flemish government. Remember, initially they put half of their budget into the creation of IMEC. Now it's about 20% of their budget. So just to give you an idea, Last year's revenue, but it's not, you know, revenue, it's a not-for-profit, was 850 million euros. I think they're going to go through a billion this year just in the revenue. So if you take a billion, 20% of that, so about 200 million comes from the government. So from us, it's not the full 200 million. There is a number of grants they also get from a European perspective. And so why do we do that? First and foremost, we want to protect our jewel and make sure that it keeps on evolving, innovating, and it has a number of areas where they can focus on as areas of risk. Because the areas they are working on with the technology partners, with all these people in the industry, are areas where they've committed to advance the roadmap. But if you want to work on certain areas where you don't know what's it going to be, you need some funding on that too, because you need to put people on that. That's where that's funding from the government. So it's more of a risk capital component versus a guaranteed component where the contributors of the programs pay a multi-million dollar fee to be part of that next generation of the evolution of the semiconductor roadmap. So that's where that 20% lies. And now, how do you keep people from driving too much? Well, we bring them all together every single year. So I make brings all those leaders from those companies together in a room and they jointly decide on that evolution of that roadmap. IMIC makes suggestions based upon the evolution of the technology they know and what could happen. And then they jointly decide on where they want to go and how they want to spend that and by what timing and how the program should advance in which timelines to make it happen for everybody. So again, they're trying to play the intermediate role in making sure that everybody's happy towards spending because one spends a little bit more than the other, but at the same time, everybody's going to benefit from the output they uh, jointly create. We've talked about roadmaps, we've talked about semiconductors, quantum computing, health tech. Oh, and we also briefly touched on energy out in Limburg. Because this is an, across universities, what other research focuses does IMAC focus on? I mean, if you're working in the semiconductor industry, you're obviously staring at what's going on at the fab in Leuven, but what other research is happening outside of Leuven? 
Yeah, for example, the batteries. Eh? Batteries is something which keeps us all awake these days. If it's not for our smartphones, it's for our cars, right? Everybody who has a car, electrical car, probably has one day a range anxiety. Am I going to get there? Yes or no? Because I have no other engine to actually get me from A to B. And the big issue, it, it's a big issue in, in Europe. Eh? Everybody is really focused on getting to carbon neutrality. 2030 is an important date. 2050, it's a much more important date. Uh, 2030, no more fossil fuel cars in Europe. 2050, everything has to be almost carbon positive, so to speak, when you produce something. So being able to advance the state of batteries where perhaps we haven't talked about one thing yet. Eh? If you think about the evolution of semiconductors, what I make typically does every single day is invent new materials. And so because you need new materials to advance the state of how you create, uh, if you think about creating a semiconductor on a wafer, you have to put uh, sometimes up to 100 process steps on top of each other. And you do that by inventing new materials and by way of creating new ways and stacking 3D capabilities as we talked about before. Well. The same goes for, for example, the creation of, of new types of batteries, eh? the solid state battery, which is an evolution of the lithium ion capabilities we have today. They've now created a way that apparently electrons can flow a lot faster if you put them in a solid state environment versus in a fluid environment. And by having electrons flow faster, you can charge your batteries faster of your car and we will advance the evolution of that and of the smartphone, of course. So. A lot of battery research has taken place, but also in that same regard, if you think about energy, they're looking at the next generation of solar panels. And for example, windows which have solar panel integration so that a normal window is also a solar panel. And all of those evolutions, again, come from IMEC and people who've been working with them, especially in the Japan area. A lot of solar is still coming about from there. Of course, China over the last 10 years has taken over a lot from a commodity perspective, but the next generation of evolutions will come from Japan and again, and that's all collaborations from IMEX. So I can name a number of other spaces and I'll, I'll give you one more. Smart cities, and you might think smart city, that is something encompassing a lot of different technology areas. That's true, but IMEX is then driven by probably some of their collaborations with the Flemish government who says, hey, we want to get 30% of cars out of the city, but how do you keep the city flowing? How do you do that? And if you still have cars, and if you now have a lot more bicycles, how do you interweave those traffic patterns through each other and you keep the flowing of people and goods through a city in a more optimal way? You can sense that that is more to do with, with software and software modeling, and that's the initial phase that is true. But then, of course, comes ways to create technologies to embed them into the city so that they are seamlessly there without you noticing them. And so there's a number of research teams working on that. But again, eh, it's always researched with an applied nature because you've got it by now. IMIC is not an academic kind of vehicle. It's really an applied vehicle of applied research, getting to the first prototypes and being ready to really create that mass adoption of that technology. And whether that is in battery technology, whether that is in the next pacemaker, in the next sleep patch to understand how well you're sleeping or not, whether that is in new batteries, they really want to be there. And they believe that software and semiconductors together will make the difference for the next years to come. And that's so exciting. I think just this idea that you might be able to have solar panels and windows, I think could 
be huge because I personally think one of the reasons that everyone doesn't have them on their roofs is because solar panels are ugly, right? You know, this idea that every building in a smart city might have solar panels in the in the windows and that we could, you know, get to carbon neutral with the helping of the traffic patterns, having more people on bikes. Also, you said you're in New York City now, so I'm sure you're dealing with the, you know, traffic issues all the time. Oh my God, yeah. I don't I don't like to ride a bike here. Trust me. <laughs> Yeah, it would be wonderful to see that sort of progress in all of our cities. And I think, you know, we brought you in today, semi-interesting podcast. I knew about the IMAX influence in semiconductors, but didn't realize quite how much you guys were doing in so many other spaces. So that's the news to me and very exciting. So thank you so much for sharing. Very welcome. And it was a pleasure to be here and, and to uh, to get you guys a little bit more engaged into my world and the exciting period I had there. And the fact that I can sell these capabilities to the rest of the world and hopefully attract a lot more companies to collaborate and partner with them. And so that a lot more countries and, and companies can use their great technologies uh, moving forward. We'll all plan on going with you on a future trip to Belgium, enjoy the waffles, take a tour of the clean room and see what other growth is happening. You're very welcome. Always welcome, Nathaniel. And uh, really, it was a pleasure for me to be here and to answer all your questions. And uh, yeah, looking forward to many more years of innovations at ICA and IMEC. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Semi-Interesting Podcast. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, including YouTube. And if you enjoyed the episode, we always appreciate five-star reviews. While we talked about legal issues, none of the information shared during this podcast is intended to be legal advice. If you have any questions about information we cover or ideas for a future episode, feel free to contact me or the other attorneys at Hodgson Russ. You can find contact information at www.hodgsonruss.com.